Let's turn in the scriptures to Proverbs chapter 3. A few weeks ago, we began to encounter God's instruction manual for how to get wisdom, how to live wisely. This is Proverbs 1 through 9. Proverbs, of course, are pithy, picturesque statements of truth. This collection that we're studying was written about 3,000 years ago by Solomon, who was king of Israel. He was one of the greatest philosophers in human history. And the Bible actually contains a few of his volumes on how to get wisdom. Wisdom, of course, has nothing to do with your academic degrees. It has nothing to do with your DNA or your IQ. You can be a very intelligent person who is very foolish in a biblical sense. Wisdom, instead, refers to a skill. It's a relational skill. It's the skill of rightly relating to God in every facet of life. Whether you're thinking about how to use your mouth, or how to use your money, or thinking about how to respond to suffering. Wisdom refers to knowing how to relate with God in every facet of life. We learned in chapter 1 a few weeks back that wisdom begins with and centers on respect for God. And that's going to demand that you repudiate peer pressure that encourages you to rebel against God. And it demands that you repent when God corrects you. In any number of ways, God can correct us. We repent. We respond when he corrects us. We then learned in chapter 2 that it goes really beyond that. It's not just that you, you listen, but wise people, their whole life turns into a, a, a hunt, a search for wisdom. It's not just that when you hear the voice of God, like, like you, uh, your parents say, don't do that. And, and they're, they're correcting you in the, in the way of wisdom. Or maybe it's a teacher. Or maybe it's just nature. You look up at the stars and you say, who do I think I am? Maybe it's a friend that God puts in your life who tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. It's not just when you happen to get wisdom coming at you, you say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to that. Proverbs 2 says it actually turns into a hunt. You go searching for correction. You hunt for people who will inform your life and challenge your life in the direction of godliness. That's what Proverbs 2 says. It's, it's a life that progresses from listening when God corrects to hunting for God's correction. Wise people beg for God's correction. They, they hunt for it. They crave it. And when we studied chapter 2, I emphasize this life-dominating hunt in the first few verses of the chapter, but because of time, I didn't get to explain the benefits of wisdom. Now, thankfully, Solomon is going to bring up these benefits cyclically throughout these chapters, but you might have noticed in the second half of of, uh, Proverbs 2, there's this emphasis on how wisdom will guard you from so many dangers in life. It'll guard you from ruining your life with personal corruption. It'll guard you from ruining your life with immorality or ruining your life with evil friends. Now we approach the first 12 verses of chapter 3. And this is a poetic summary 
of what a wise life looks like and what the benefits of a wise life are. Again, Solomon is going to keep emphasizing, keep developing these, these same sorts of things. What is wisdom? What does it look like? How do you get it? What are its benefits? He's going to crystallize them into six couplets. Couplets. These are two-verse pairs. So these 12 verses that we're going to read, Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, it's really just six statements of wisdom. And the first part of each couplet, so like verse 1, it is a command. And the second part of the couplet is an assurance. So you have a couplet that has verse 1, a command. Verse 2, an assurance. Verse 3, a command. Verse 4, an assurance. And so forth. There's six couplets. A command and assurance. A pair. Okay? It summarizes what a wise life looks like and assurances the benefits to those who pursue wisdom. My son, verse 1, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Assurance. So you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and men. Command. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and promise. He'll make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Listen to the blessing. It'll be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary or resent when he reproves you for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights whenever you read a portion of the Bible it's critical that you say what is the main idea what is God's main point we're not just looking for random good thoughts from the verses but we're actually seeking to understand God's primary burden in revealing the words. And biblical preaching, as an aside, makes God's main point the main point. Right? I would express the main point of these 12 verses something like this. If you want to experience the good life, then put God at the center. Those who put God at the center of their lives will be blessed. Often now and always later. If you want to experience the good life, put God at the center. Those who put God at the center will be blessed. Often now, always later. These are Proverbs, right? I want to explain the six points, giving a little bit of development to each one, and uh, hopefully giving us several uh, 
pieces of food, solid food to feed our souls, to sustain and grow our faith and help us live wisely. Every one of the points begins with make God central in. The first point is in how you think Bible. It's an awkward wording, but it's the best that I can capture verses 1 and 2. Notice in verse 1 that Solomon's not merely calling us to let God's words of wisdom pass through our ears and brains. He's saying, keep it. Treasure it. Treasure it in your heart. Your very life depends on it. So how do you actually obey this command in Proverbs 3.1? I think we obey it when we choose to read God's word, to listen to it, to journal about it, to take notes on it, to review it, to memorize it, to share it. In all these ways, we're not just letting it go in one ear and out the other. We're trying to plant it in our hearts. We're trying to help it grow there and have time to get water and sunshine, the water of meditation and sunshine of reflection. The assurance of verse 2 is that those who treasure God's word will generally experience a long and peaceful life. Now, this is a proverb. It's a rule of thumb. It's not an absolute promise that never has any exceptions. It's a promise that is generally true and eternally true, though not always immediately true for God's people. Interestingly, a few years ago, one of the kids after Buckaroo came to me. They sought me out and they said, can you tell me, is it true that Christians live longer than non-Christians? And I said, I'm actually not sure about the, the statistics on that question. Let me take a look and I'll get back with you. And I spent a little bit of time over the next week doing some research. And I discovered that there are some pretty strong general statistics that support an affirmative answer. I shared two studies with her. Recently shared these studies with our teens and other teens May 16, 2016, CNN reported on a study of 75,000 middle-aged female nurses in the U.S. They asked about their attendance at religious services over a 20-year period. The researchers found, I'm now quoting the CNN report, the researchers found that the women who went to church more than once a week had a 33% lower risk of dying during that study period compared with those who said they never went. Interestingly, the researchers also determined that, I'm quoting them, the benefits of church attendance outweigh the possible dangers. People often accuse those of going to church of like increasing their guilt or anxiety or intolerance of other people. They said this study does not reveal that that's the case. The benefits of church attendance outweigh the possible dangers. Second study, University of Colorado. This was reported in Science Daily on May 17th. 1999, quote, research shows religion plays a major role in health and longevity. In general, those who go to church once or more each week can look forward to about seven more years than those who never attend. That study was done with 28,000 people over an eight-year period, 1987 to 1995. These studies 
as I'm going to show in a few minutes, have been repeated over and over and over. Make God central in how you think Bible. Secondly, make God central in how you do business. The second command, it's given there in verse 3, it focuses on the personal virtues of, if you look at verse 3, steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, above all, these are personal virtues that characterize God. God is known for being a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. For example, Psalm 115 famously begins, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. These virtues above all characterize God. But they characterize us when we enter into covenants or contracts or verbal promises and keep them. God remains faithful to his word, and Solomon is saying, you are wise if you, like God, remain faithful to your word in your business dealings. Are you trustworthy? Are you reliable? Would your manager consider you reliable? Would your clients consider you reliable? Would your spouse consider you reliable? Would your parents consider you reliable? Are you a reliable person. According to verse 4, again, it's a couplet, a command and a promise or an assurance. Those whose lives are marked by steadfast love and faithfulness, by this kind of trustworthiness, they'll be highly esteemed, the proverb says, by both God and other people. Again, that's a rule of thumb. In the end, of course, what God thinks of us is really all that matters, who God knows us to be. That's all that matters. But the proverb is saying, Generally, you're going to have a good, reliable reputation before your friends and your family and your co-workers. It's one of wisdom's great benefits. Many times, many of us have experienced this, even people who don't like us will come to respect us for being people who keep our word. Do you put God central in how you do business and being a reliable person? Is God's character your character? Third, make God central in how you make decisions. Verse 5 says, In every facet of life, in all your decision making, in every road you might go down, fully rely on the Lord and don't ever rely on your own reasoning, merely your own reasoning. It's not saying make stupid decisions. Obviously, you want to think through decisions and reason. But it's saying, don't merely think on your own terms. What does God say about the decision you're making? When you make big decisions, do you seek God's will by prayerfully studying what the Bible has to say about the decision you're making? And then humbly seeking counsel from a few, what I would call Bible-saturated advisors, friends, Parents who know the Bible well, who know you well, and would be able to comment on the decision in a helpful way. According to verse 6, the assurance for those who trust the Lord in their decisions, the promise or the assurance is that the Lord is going to smooth out your path in life. He's going to clear tons of unnecessary obstacles. You see the language making your path smooth? 
It's the language of building a highway. It's actually used identically in Isaiah 40, where it says, Make a highway for our God. Let every valley be brought up and every mountain made low. You say, that sounds to me like an old classical piece in Handel's Messiah, but it doesn't quite connect with me. All you have to do is drive on Route 77 through West Virginia, right? You can fly 70 miles an hour through West Virginia legally. You can fly 70 miles through West Virginia because as you go, you notice that, that mountains have been dynamited so that you don't have to go up and down as much. And there are lots of bridges. Some of them are remarkable engineering feats. And you even go through tunnels. The way has been straightened all the way through so that you can fly through West Virginia. And when God says he's going to make your path straight, he clearly doesn't mean that those who are godly are never going to have any problems. It does mean that those who trust God in their decisions will avoid many, many rocks as they drive through life. There's so many things that are going to be avoided by making godly choices. You're going to avoid penalties and foolish debt. You might avoid child support, binding addictions that change your life for years. You avoid many broken relationships. You can avoid a criminal record. You can avoid jail time. You can avoid diseases that could have been avoided. Not to mention all the guilt and regrets that come from living in a way that displeases God. Generally speaking, so many rocks are just cleared out of the way for those who trust the Lord in their decisions. But for those who rebel against their Creator, I'm going to quote an opposite proverb, Proverbs 13, 15, quote, a treacherous person walks a rocky road, the opposite of a smooth path. Make God central in how you make decisions. Fourth, make God central in how you fight sin. Verses 7 and 8. Here Solomon is actually building on the central thought in these six poetic couplets. He's building on the central thought of putting God at the center, trusting the Lord in all you do. According to verses 5 and 6, we positively seek God's will in our decisions. According to verses 7 and 8, we follow through by actually turning away from the evil option and choosing the right one. This demands the fear of the Lord, verse 7. As Jim often defines the fear of the Lord, it means very fundamentally realizing that God is a threat to your existence. Do you stand in terror of God? Your life depends entirely on him. And for those who follow Jesus and have responded to the fact that I'm a rebel against God and the only hope that I have for forgiveness and reconciliation with God is Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you continue to live through your whole life with a heart that stands in awe of God, loving him, worshiping him, not wanting to disobey him, humbly submitting to him because you fear God, you respect him. It's central in your life. Many people know what God wants them to do 
and they just don't care. They don't care enough to follow through. They don't care enough to say no to sin and their sinful cravings and say yes to God. A few minutes ago, I gave a few statistics, and I want to comment again. Last fall, I read a few of Rebecca McLaughlin's books, including one that she wrote in 2015. It's this one called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. It's a book in which I appreciated every chapter. Ron's actually made a few copies available at the back. Just to be clear, you're not coming into a bookstore this morning. You're coming into a church, but we do want to get books into people's hands. If you think this would be helpful, there are a few copies out in the, in the lobby. Um, we make nothing on the books. We just want to get good material into people's hands. In the book, she responds to 12 questions, including about, like, Christianity and women. Hasn't Christianity had a bad track record with women? What about Christians and homophobia? What about Christians and their track record with slavery? What do Christians do with the problem of evil and suffering? I had some issues with her chapter on science, even though her, her answer was immensely valuable, and I, I appreciated reading it. Her chapter that answers the question on Christians and the history of violence is worth the whole price of the book. But today, I just want to focus on chapter one. Aren't we better off without religion? McLaughlin talks about how so many of her college friends just said, religion is bad for the world. So she answers the question in chapter one, aren't we better off with, without religion? And all I want to do is read a few sentences in which she kind of sums up her answer. She says, there are tons of research that's been done to conclude that religious people have a happiness advantage in life. And then she reports, Many non-religious people, of course, are passionately engaged in serving and giving, while many Christians, of course, live self-centered lives. But as atheist, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt observes, surveys have long shown that religious believers in the U.S. are happier, healthier, longer-lived, and more generous to charity and to each other than secular people. That is the summary of tons of research through which he's gone to say, aren't we better off without religion? Studies repeatedly show that that is not in fact the case. Make God central in how you, how you fight sin. It'll be good for your body. Fifth, make God central in how you handle money. Verses 9 and 10. Here Solomon offers wise advice to his son, basically saying when your land and your, your, and your uh, crops produce good fruit, we would say when you make money, the first thing you should do with it is give a portion of it to the Lord as an act of worship. Honor the Lord, the first words there, verse 9. That means show how highly you esteem him by giving the first of your income to him. And then the next verse, as we've seen, offers a promise, a general promise that God will bless you if you do. Your barns will be full. Again, this is not a, an absolute promise that if you give today, God will give you more tomorrow. Do not ever let anyone deceive you like that. This is a rule of thumb principle. 
that when you give to the Lord, he will bless you in kind. I want to apply this, all right? I can't tell you how much for you it's going to be to worship the Lord. And I can't even tell you all the places you should give it. I personally do not believe that God requires a tithe, a tenth. And we teach this sort of thing in our new members orientation class. It's my personal conviction, as Randy Alcorn describes it, that a tithe or a tenth is like the training wheels of giving. That is what my parents modeled for me. That is what Hannah and I have tried to live. And we have tried to give more than a tenth every year. We try to give more than a tenth. That's my conviction. That's the advice and the example that I've been given. And I I share that with you. According to Paul, in the clearest teaching on giving in the New Testament, we should never ever give out of compulsion. Don't give because you have to. It's not a rule. Instead, Paul says, you should give sacrificially. As one pastor puts it, you should give until it hurts. If your giving to the Lord never hurts you, you're not giving enough. And according to the New Testament, it is certainly right to give to a church that's feeding you biblical teaching. But it's also right to give to believers' needs in ways that no one ever knows about. And it is wonderful when we have people in our congregation who we have missionaries come through frequently. And we as a church don't support them as a church. But we might have five or ten people who say, I can give you 30 bucks a month or I can give you 75 bucks a month. And I can commit to that for at least the next five years if God wills. It's awesome to see believers who are just giving here and giving there and giving there and giving there. Don't give because you have to. And don't just give in one place. Give liberally. The bottom line is, I can't tell you how much to give or where you should give it. You should wrestle with those questions and seek for the Spirit's leading on those things. But here's what I can tell you, Proverbs 3.9. Honoring the Lord with your wealth should be priority in your thinking about money. It should be priority in your budget. If you're sitting here saying, I give to God if I have anything left over at the end of the month, you're not putting God first, like Proverbs 3.9 says. And I can tell you that the amount that you give should convey honor on the Lord. And for a poor widow, two mites conveys honor on the Lord, more than the lavish gifts of the Pharisees who give to be seen by other people. Does it honor the Lord if we come to the end of the year and we say, you know what? I've spent more on television this year than I have on getting the gospel to the world. I've spent more on pets this year. I've spent more on eating out this year than I have to the gospel's advance. Jesus says, our treasure reveals where our heart is. I pray that our treasure reveals that we honor the Lord. I want to be clear. Whenever we talk about giving, and we don't do it as much as we should here, we try to make giving a private matter, and we try to 
send a siren signal to anyone who's visiting our church that we're not here to get your money. That's not it at all. We don't care about your money. We care about you. I want you to know, like, we've looked at the March 31 figures, and we are in the best place I think that we've ever been after a first quarter. I'm not saying this because we need more money. I'm, I'm communicating this because God's word says it, and I'm communicating it to a congregation that has been through the years marked by faithful, generous giving. I thank God so much for you, Tri-County, in the ways that you give, and I just say keep on doing it. And many in here, I'm sure, need to be confronted. All of us need to be confronted, really, with this challenge to honor the Lord with the first of all we make. Now, before we come to the final couplet in verses 11 and 12, I want to park one more time on the blessings. Because there are blessings. We've, we've now encountered five times that, as a rule of thumb, if you walk wisely, you'll be blessed. And I want to work through one more set of statistics that reveal that this is, in fact, true. I hope that you leave here saying, wow, I never realized that. Maybe some of you have realized that. And you say, those are things that I need to be ready to share with other people. Two more reports. The first comes from Harvard's Human Flourishing Program. This was reported, I I encountered it in Christianity Today, October of 2021. The title of the article was, Empty Pews Are an American Health Crisis. The report is, regular attenders of church versus never attenders of church are, number one, 84% less likely to commit suicide, 50% less likely to divorce, and 33% less likely to use drugs as teens. This is a secular college, a secular program that's evaluating the statistics, and they're saying there is a major difference in terms of even American health between regular attenders and never attenders. The second report I want to bring up here in, as we're talking about the fifth point is Josh Howerton summarizes in an article at TGC. His article is entitled, No, Christianity is Not as Bad as You Think. He summarizes the sociological research. First one, I have three bullets up there. Quote, people who pray daily and regularly attend church significantly outpace their irreligious neighbors in generosity to the poor, both with time and money. Second, quote, church-going conservative Christians are in the category with the most fulfilling sex lives in America. Church-going conservative Christians. Third bullet, theologically conservative, gender-traditional, church-attending women are in the category of the happiest relationships with the least abuse in the country. Now, again, I have to say that what these statistics are saying is not that every single Christian demonstrates all the time that life is good. Okay, we're going to get there. I want you to know that I have grown up in a family and I have talked with hundreds of believers who have experienced abuse in the church. Please do not hear me saying that every woman is happy if she comes to a conservative church. That is not the case, okay? These are rules of thumb, general statistics. But if you watch much TV, 
you are programmed to think that church-going Christians are on the whole backward, unhappy. They want to make everyone else unhappy. They're abusive. They're bigoted. And in fact, the statistics consistently demonstrate the exact opposite. The statistics demonstrate that conservative church-going Christians experience the highest levels of any category of people of happiness and human flourishing. The sorts of research that I've reviewed throughout the message today confirm the truthfulness of the Proverbs that we're studying. And I want to say, no matter what our experience of life now, whether we live happier or longer or not, eternal life in Jesus' kingdom will make every single one of these promises truer than anything we experience now. So I wonder what you think of Proverbs 3. We're just about ready to wrap up with the last couplet, okay? But just stop. What do you think of Proverbs 3? Earlier in the message, I, I gave the, the main idea, right? I wonder if it was unsettling for you when I said, if you want to experience the good life, then... I wonder if you would have filled in the blank differently. I wonder if right now you would fill in the blank differently. Some of you might think, boy, the good life... That would be to break free from my parents' rules. Seriously, do you think that the good life has freedom from restrictions at the center? Some of you think, man, the good life would be success. Some of you think, if I want the good life, I need to experience sexual pleasure when and how I want. You imagine that the good life revolves around sexual expression and pleasure. Other people think the good life revolves around getting to travel or how many hours you get to enjoy of me time each week. Do you realize that if you would fill in that blank with anything other than God, you're believing a lie? If you want to experience the good life, you must put God at the center. And if this message is convicting you right now, I urge you to repent. There is hope. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be changed now and forever. Now for the final two verses. Make God central in how you respond to pain. The sixth couplet doesn't seem to fit with the previous five but it is integrally connected. It's the undeniable proof that God's central in your life. Because you've been promised, put God first and you'll be blessed. Put God first and you'll be blessed. And then the last one says, and when you're not blessed, this is what you think of God. Wow. Those who walk wisely experience trials in life in order to show that we love God for himself more than any of the blessings he gives. We don't love God for what we get out of him. We love God for him. Has your heart been changed so that you love God more than comfort, so that you love God even in pain? 
the great assurance. Look at the assurance of verse 12. If that's you, it's proof that you're his child and he delights in you. We have two other books out in the lobby this morning. Again, you have not come to a bookstore. Dave Furman wrote, Being There, How to Love Those Who Are Hurting, and Kiss the Wave, Embracing God in Your Trials. It's a better picture of him and them there. Dave is the pastor of Redeemer Church in Dubai. He and his wife Gloria have four children. They're featured in one of Frontline's documentaries. I love that. Dave is disabled. Around 2008, he developed a neurological condition that took away from him the use of his arms. He's unable to help his wife carry in groceries. He can't put on his own pants. He can't buckle his own seatbelt. Dave describes where he was two years into this trial after they had tried surgery and after four months it had failed. Quote, I was depressed, incorrigible, seething with anger toward God, my wife, and everyone around me. I was on high dosage medications for my severe nerve pain and for anxiety and depression. I tried reading Christian books, but none of them performed the magic trick of emotional transformation I was hoping for. We watched all nine seasons of a favorite sitcom in an attempt to cheer me up, but it was to no avail. I wanted to die. He's writing a decade after those dark days in this book, Kiss the Wave. A decade later, he was remembering what the early years of pastoral ministry were like, he said, I wish my story had a happy ending to share with you, but it doesn't, at least not in the way most people describe as happy. Ten years later, I'm not physically healed. I'm still disabled. I can't drive, shake hands, pick up my children. My arms hurt all the time. I live with burning pain from my elbows to my forearms 24 hours a day. I'm developing new tingling sensations and weakness in my legs. Throughout this journey, I've struggled greatly with depression. Some days, life seems completely hopeless. But something in my life did change. Our friends, Brady and Amber, graciously and gently rebuked me for being a self-centered and hurtful husband. I was also convinced of my own hypocrisy as a young pastor. I wasn't living out the life I was telling other people to live. The most vital change Listen, the most vital change was a rediscovery of God and his gospel. I began embracing my trials as something God meant for my good and his glory. I read that again. I began embracing my trials as something God meant for my good and his glory. And I found hope again in the one God of the universe. He goes on to say in the first chapter, the Lord began to teach me what the late British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon meant when he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. That's where the title of his book comes from. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. He says, I have longed 
to be lifted out of the rough and dark waters that feel as if they're engulfing me. I've spent many long nights despising the waves. I've never thought about kissing them. None of us enjoys adversity. We want out. And yet God, in his grace, uses suffering for our benefit. We must embrace the God who has sovereignly designed our circumstances. Kiss the waves. In the midst of the storm, God has our good and his glory in mind. Kiss the wave. In the inspired words of Proverbs 3.12, Don't despise the Lord's discipline. And don't resent him when he rebukes you. Kiss him. Welcome him. Thank him. Receive it. God disciplines us because he loves us. Proverbs 3, 1 to 12, they constantly challenge us to examine our hearts. But do you notice? Love God. Put him first. Make God central. Do you realize that in one sense, what Solomon is doing is he is poetically and beautifully filling out the law. The law says, love God with all your heart. So if this is poetic law, trust God. Honor God. Receive God's discipline. Make God central. Fear God. You get the idea. If this is just a poetic fleshing out of what love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength looks like, then what we're dealing with is law. All of us come into this world unable to obey the law. All of us come into this world with hearts who want to be our own authority, make the rules for ourselves, to pursue what we want, not what God wants for us. We're fools who are in desperate need of rescue. We're not naturally wise. No one comes into the world naturally wise. But the message of the whole Bible, we've got to read Proverbs 3 in light of the whole Bible. The message of the whole Bible is that Jesus is the only human who perfectly fulfilled the law. He's the only person who came into this world saying, I love your law, O God. It's written on my heart. Only Jesus lived with God at the center of his being. Only Jesus treasured God's commands. Only Jesus was perfectly trustworthy, keeping every word he spoke. Only Jesus always turned away from evil. And yet... Rather than living the blessed life, Jesus gave himself to experience the curse for disobedience to the law, even though he never disobeyed it. Jesus chose to die in the place of fools. He died to bear our guilt for our law-breaking, for everyone who would trust him. And Jesus promises to give his spirit to all those who follow him to change our hearts and empower us to love God and love others. 
That's the message of the Bible in a nutshell. So do not leave here saying, put God at the center of my money and at the center of my decisions and da-da-da-da-da. Put God at the center. Okay, I'm going to go out of here and I'm going to try harder. Don't anyone leave here thinking, I'm going to try harder this week. Leave here thinking something like, God the Father, I was made to love you, but there's something twisted with my heart. I'm self-centered rather than you-centered. Leave here saying, God the Son, Jesus, by your blood, forgive me. Change me so that I love God supremely. Leave here saying, God the Spirit, who united me with Jesus, empower me to live in the power of Jesus' resurrection, a new kind of life, to love God with all I am and have. God, help me. Don't leave here saying, I'm going to try harder. The law is not intended to drive you to you. The law is intended to drive you to God. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would drive us toward you. Thank you, Father, for your good law that tells us what is good for us. Thank you, God the Son, for dying for all of our law-breaking and offering us cleansing. Thank you, God the Spirit, that you can change our hearts, uniting us with Jesus. God, I pray that your word would drive us to you today. Change us, shape us, strengthen us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.